Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Banner Podcast, where birders talk birding. I'm from western Washington, live in Tacoma, in, in, the, in Pierce County, just south of King County, the largest by population county in Washington state. And King County has a very diverse set of birding habitats. It has mountains, it has parts of Mount Rainier National Park, or that, that area it has some of the Cascade Mountains. It has the Puget Sound, but it also has Lake Washington. Uh, and Lake Washington divides the urban part of King County into the east side and the west side. On the east side is famous for Microsoft and, and that, those type of uh, high-tech communities. And it also has Marymore Park. Marymore Park is a really good birding spot in King County. It is the third largest eBird list with 242 species found. And my guest today, Michael Hobbs, has been doing a weekly bird survey at Marymore Park for 30 years, or almost 30 years. Quite a task. And that is fabulous data. He is a, a data geek. He keeps excellent records, all of this information is on eBird. So Marymore Park probably is one of the better documented, uh, systemically docu- systematically documented uh, hotspots for birding in maybe in the world. I don't know. Certainly uh, in in uh, Washington. So I'm super excited to talk to Michael about that and also about his county birding. He has 150 species in all of the 39 counties in Washington, so he's really familiar with Washington State birding and uh, has been a terrific guest on the show. So I hope you'll enjoy hearing as much as I did talking to Michael Hobbs on this episode of the Bird Banner Podcast. Michael, thanks for doing this. Welcome to the podcast. Ah, thank you for asking me to join you, Ed. Yeah, I'm excited. You know, I have been following sort of from Tacoma, so not getting up to it, but the Mary Moore walks uh, and your reports on tweeters and uh, and various things kind of saying, gosh, this guy has really, he does this every week. What an ambitious thing to do and uh, write these fabulous reports. So I'm, uh, I can't wait to learn about it. But I thought before that, since Washington birders, everyone knows you, or at least a lot of Washington birders know you, but maybe other people don't. Tell me about yourself and how you got into birding and sort of your birding story. Uh, yes, yeah, so I uh, came out to the Seattle area in 1987 to work at Microsoft, and uh, we, my wife at the time and I, we had a baby, and it was like April, the year after the baby was born, and we didn't know anybody in town, and my wife announced that she had signed us up for a Audubon field trip on Saturday, and I was like, what? Go out looking at little birdies with old ladies? I was not looking forward to this. Were they all dressed like Jane Hathaway in, in tan clothes? It was not all, all old ladies. It was old men, too. But, I mean, I was 25, and I was probably 25 years younger than the next youngest person. Uh, and, you know, but we were walking around, and I saw, like, a northern flicker and went, oh, my goodness, it's a, it's a red-shafted flicker. I've only seen the yellow-shafted ones before. And then I saw a swallow, and it was that's not a tree swallow. It's got the white on the face and green. And that's the other one. And I did look in the book. I never thought I'd see one of those violet green swallows. And shortly thereafter, I realized, how did I know that? How did really? I know the birds? Uh, my wife had noticed that I pointed out birds to her all the time. And I didn't even know bird watching was really a thing. And uh, a couple of weeks later, we did a trip to Nisqually, and the people on that trip told me about writing down the birds you see and keeping a life list. 
So I went home and went through the bird book and I was able to come up with 80 species where I could remember that I'd seen the bird, where I was and what month of what year it had been. Oh my um, goodness. You I must have a fabulous books. memory. I memorized the bird books as a kid. I'd, I'd been really kind of sickly as a kid and I spent a lot of time at home and my mother's bookshelf was not interesting, but there was a Peterson's Eastern Birds and the Golden Guide. And mm -hmm. so I looked through those and looked through mm -hmm. those and looked through those and just picked it up without even knowing that like being a bird watcher, being a birder was something one did. So that's how I got into it. Uh, you know, it was just that kind of way. And for the first several years, all we did was went on Audubon field trips with what was then East Lake Washington Audubon Society. So sort of an accidental birder, so to speak. Yeah, I certainly didn't have, you know, sort of that, uh, you know, raised by parents who were, were birders or met somebody that really got me into birding or had some amazing bird experience. None of that really happened. It was just, um, you know, falling in and finding out that it was interesting. And I was actually kind of innately pretty good at it. Um, and it became something I just wanted to do a lot of. Very cool. So how did, uh, uh, do, do you live near, you must live somewhere near Marymore, I'm assuming. So, yeah, I mean, I, all the time I was working at Microsoft, I lived within, you know, just a couple of miles of the Microsoft campus and Marymore is within sight of uh, the Microsoft campus. So when uh, I was like, I'm not getting out birding enough because I was working 60 hours a week at Microsoft and I had two small children and, you know, uh, but it was like, we've got flex time. I could come to work late one morning a week. So I just naturally went down to Marymore for that. Sure. At first, just for like four or five visits every spring. But I eventually, you know, uh, I'm, I'm kind of into burning data and keeping lists. And after a while, I looked at my, you know, like 20 trips into Marymore. I looked at my Marymore bird list and realized that a third of the birds on my bird list had been on the one New Year's Day or thereabouts trip I'd done. One January trip had a third of all the species that I'd seen at the park. Wow. And uh, so I was like, well, what would happen if I just went all year round? Would there be other different birds? Mm -hmm. So that's really how it got started. So that would have been give or take 30 years ago now. Yeah, so the uh, from uh, March 30th, 1994, I have every week reports. I mean, there's a couple of misses, especially in the early years when we go on vacation somewhere. Sure. But pretty much from that date on, I've gone every week for 30 years. Wow, that is endurance and perseverance. Cool stuff. So I bet you've collect. I mean, you said that you're a data keeper, and I I know that in part because you're a big part of Washington Birder, which is kind of a listing also everything about Washington Birding website, and what we'll talk about that later. But uh, one of the things. The primary thing I think that people use Washington Birder for, for is to report their lists, be they county, state, whatever, lists and other kind of <laughs> cutting and slicing and dicing the state in different ways lists. Uh, so uh, tell me, what is, what's been your experience with listing at Marymore? What's your Marymore life list? And, uh, and, you know, 
when is the best time of the year? I mean, I'm assuming it's May, but yeah, whatever. <laughs> um, so uh, we have records of, I think it's 243 species at Marymore Park. That includes birds seen by other people. Mm -hmm. um, I've seen 220 something species at the park. I don't have the actual, my personal number right off the top of my head, but it's, you know, way up there. What well, you know, in terms of what's the best time of year, uh, the first week in May has the highest total number of species cumulatively. Mm -hmm. um, but really, in a lot of ways, fall is better because um, uh, over the course of several weeks in the fall, there's way more possible species than there are in the weeks around May. Um, has to do with a sort of the differential mi migration that in the spring um it's the you know breeding birds rushing north they stop at the park briefly and go on and uh, the first week in may is when we have the most remaining wintering birds the most returning birds and the most migrating birds all coming through but in fall you have all the ones that are also just wandering around strangely the first year males that are going and exploring and the, the vagrants that have, uh, you know, screwed up compasses and end up just anywhere tend to be in the fall. So the total number of species you could find over the course of a fall is more than the normal that you could find in the course of a spring. Listeners like me who don't have not birded at Marymore, uh, describe the park and, and Marymore has a story of its own, I'm sure. And so, I mean, uh, the park itself is about a square mile, 640 acres. It's right at the north end of Lake Sammamish, where the Sammamish River leaves the lake to drain to Lake Washington. And uh, it was a hugely important cultural site for the Native Americans um, back in the day, because it was sort of, you know, where they'd get together for, for, for parties. And it was a great place for that. And in fact, of course, when the Europeans first came here, uh, is it, it was acquired by the Kleist family. They're still big uh, property owners in Seattle, but they uh, they took over Mary Moore and built a mansion there and had parties there and cleared a lot of the ground, making large fields with dikes around them and raised prized cattle there. And then they sold it off after a while, it went to various farmers. And uh, in the late 1960s, it got bought by King County um, and I, I don't know exactly when the park opened, but it was in the 70s. Something. Uh, okay. It's a really it's a, so it has a varied yeah. habitat. It sounds like. Yeah. So you've got you've got the the river, uh, the river's edge, and the riparian zone along that. Uh, you've got a big cottonwood forest down at the lake edge, and then you've got various meadows, uh, the ones that were created by the Kleist family um, and the other farmers. Uh, and then, you know, the, the entire southeast corner is pretty much inaccessible. There's no paths and no way to get in there. And it's a big forest. Uh, the entire northern part of the park is athletic fields and stuff like that. Um, but those can actually attract quite a number of birds. I mean, those grass soccer fields that the youth soccer players play on all fall is where the cackling geese land by the hundreds or sometimes thousands in the winter to eat the grass. Sure. Uh, and any any uh, bird walk that I'm familiar with, I am more familiar with the Nisqually one that goes pretty much every week, but has a pretty much a loyal group of birders, sometimes more walkers. It's kind of a fellowship sort of thing. It's it's kind of a thing that 
that, that develops after a while. Has Mary Moore sort of been like that? Oh, absolutely. For the first year or so, I did it completely alone, sometimes with a friend from work. But uh, I met Brian Bell there. He just passed this last July, I think. Um, but we, we met on the boardwalk. He had just moved up from California and was signed up to lead a field trip for the Audubon Society and never been to the park. And I'd been walking around the park every week for over a year. And uh, so we talked, he started coming out with me every year and and did so un, until the Thursday before he died this year. Wow. Um, so he was out with me hundreds and hundreds and well, well over a thousand times. actually. Wow. And, but for a long time, it was just him and me. Um, and then I was a little, once I got sort of got the idea of doing a survey that this, what I was doing was actually a survey. Um, and really, I was I was inspired by Martin Mueller, who did um, reports from Green Lake practically every day for more than a decade. Wow! Um, and he he had learned so much about the birds there by just going out all the time. So since I was going out all the time, I was like, oh, maybe this I should treat this like a survey and and really try to be very consistent and. Uh, and that sort of thing. So when I was still, when it was just Brian and me, and he was a very experienced birder, and I was still a pretty new birder, I was learning reams from him, and I was a little reluctant to let other people come along, but I, I started to feel more comfortable and started to let more people in. And, uh, you know, for the last 20 years, it's been anywhere from five to 20 people each week, and and many of those people have come out, you know, on a regular basis for a few years, a few uh, you know months or years or decades. Um, so it's been really a, where a lot of my friends have uh, how, how I've met a lot of my friends. Sure, I'm sure crowd control becomes a, a little bit of an issue. I bet on the Nisqually Walk, which sometimes can be sixty or seventy people, just an awesome gag. Yeah, of no, people. I, I, I'm I'm a little. Since this is more of a survey and much less of a field trip, um, mm -hmm. you know, we we do it differently. I would not allow there to be that many. There's been a few times um, in the last few years where we've actually split into two groups, and uh, sometimes Jordan Roderick or somebody will lead the other, you know, half of the people in the other direction around the loop, mm -hmm. um, just so that we keep the numbers in a reasonable size. Sure, keep it under control. Uh, so, uh, have you have you learned anything? Uh, have you drawn any deductions from your thirty-ish years of research at the site uh, about? I'll let you take the lead. What What have you learned? Well, one of the things I've learned is that it's there's you know not a lot that you can actually say for sure about things like trends in the birds from a single site. So there was a few years where, you know, we'd been having gadwall all the time and the gadwall seemed to have disappeared. And I was, oh, geez, you know, I wonder if gadwall are really, you know, having a bad time. Are they threatened or something? What's going on? And then I was uh, walking around the mitigation ponds near Redmond Town Center, a quarter of a mile away from Marymore. And there were a bunch of gadwall. They just found somewhere they preferred to hang out at instead of being at Marymore, they were a quarter of a mile away. Uh, so, you know, 
you can get a, a really noticeable change in the population of a particular species that really has nothing to do with any grand, you know, grand trends, but uh, may just be local changes to the environment, really hyper-local changes to the environment. Sure. And uh, we, so we can speculate a lot, like in the last few, well, um, 12 years ago or so, uh, Great Blue Herons built a, a heron ring right in Marymore. It's in the oh busiest part of the off-leash dog area, which was just a you know stunning place. Here, these herons are building uh, a, a heronry in a place where hundreds of people and their dogs are there every day, and thousands of people and their dogs are there every weekend. You know, maybe that uh, maybe that keeps a raccoon population down and some other. I don't know. Maybe this. Absolutely. Maybe it's a synergistic Absolutely. thing. Yeah, but that's cool. 70, 75 nests. You've got 150 adult herons and 225 juvenile herons. Mm-hmm. They need a lot of food. Yeah. And what we've seen, and I presume that it is connected to this is we've seen a dramatic decrease in green herons during the breeding season, mm-hmm. in uh, mergansers, um, and in uh, red-tailed hawks, barn owls, the things that eat moles and mice mm-hmm. and voles and that sort of thing, because the herons, I presume, have just picked the place clean. Yeah. Uh, so for the last two, three years, we have not seen a green heron until right after all the herons leave. I can believe that. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of people think of, you know, great blue herons as uh, eating, eating fish. Well, they, I, I think they're very, very uh, generalist in their eating, aren't they? I mean, I think they'll oh, eat uh, rodents, uh, amphibians, yeah. uh, probably just anything yeah. they can swallow. Right, yeah. Including, you know, why you sometimes will see a red-winged blackbird land on a, a great blue heron's back and peck at it during mm-hmm. nesting season. Because if okay. a great blue is standing there in the reeds and sees a red-winged blackbird nest, it'll pluck the babies out. Yeah, I'm sure it will. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So those are interesting observations. You said there are any number of, what did you say? You didn't say conclusions, but any number of uh, suppositions you can make. Conjectures, yeah. yes. Uh, name uh, I don't so, know how you so say, what's instance, a verb uh, to, to conjecture? I don't know. Do some of that for me. Yeah. So uh, years ago in the early days, um, you know, I was still learning to be a, to, to do birding. Uh, but the thing I was best at was identifying ducks. So my data on ducks back then is, is you know, solid. And uh, the number of diving ducks and the number of coots at Marymore has dropped dramatically over the years. Uh, the number of bald eagles, on the other hand, has gone from one pair to probably three or four pair, but also at various times, dozens of juvenile eagles will gather around like in September. And, uh, you know, we've watched these bald eagles um, hunting coots and ducks. And I'm pretty certain that a lot of the decrease in the diving ducks and the coots has been because of bald eagle predation. Um, that would be logical um, conclusion. And, you know, th- there was a f- uh, probably 15 to 20 years ago now, there was a great worry that um, great blue herons were being highly predated by bald eagles. And everybody was worried a lot of heronries were being abandoned and that sort of thing. I'm pretty sure that 
you know, all the time the bald eagles had been hurt by DDT, their population was way down. Their natural prey bases blossomed. So when the bald eagles began to recover, I think the bald eagle numbers overshot uh, because they had so much prey available. And I think mm -hmm. things are now beginning to settle back down, but the balance at Marymore still doesn't favor diving back. Yeah, the, the bald eagles are still in the lead in that race, it sounds like. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. a, a big part of a walk like this has to be social. Uh, have Have you met some uh, really interesting people over the years uh, that, you know, kind of, uh, you know, tweaked your interest or, or started friendships or whatever? Uh, well, you know, so obviously Brian, uh, Brian Bell um, and somewhere... Uh, around the year 2000, we're joined by this very, very unusual looking woman because she was wearing like a pink pantsuit and inappropriate footwear. And it was Mary Frances Mathis. And she was a new birder. Uh -huh. And she was so out of place because, you know, she was from a different kind of world, but she'd fallen into birding. And, uh, even though she looked really out of place and, and everything, she struck both, both Brian and me that, that she was going to be a really good birder. She would learn really fast. She could always get on the bird. And uh, she came out for 10 or 15 years every week. It was a, a great friendship. Uh, Hugh Jennings from uh, Eastside Audubon came out every week for 20 years until he was in his 90s Wow, um, and had to had to drop out. Uh, Ollie Oliver um, started coming out. He was never going to be a great birder, and he knew that, but he had a camera, and he took photos for me and mm -hmm. um, made it really, uh, for 10 or 15 years, it was his, his, uh, his goal was just to help me uh, build a photo record of the birds at Marymore, and it was, it was stupendous. Uh, Megan Lydon was another Eastside Audubon uh, person that came out a lot. And, um, you know, she'd come out and I was talking to her about how the county had had to cut its budget really badly years before and had gotten rid of all of their interpretive staff. And I didn't think a park, park uh, employee had even walked the birding trail in 10 years. And I suggested her to her that maybe... Eastside Audubon should adopt the nature trail and she thought that was a great idea idea and she ran with it and really pushed and a few years later sure enough Eastside Audubon partnered with King County Parks and and uh, really took over stewardship of the nature trail so that was nice great it's um, amazing what a well well placed uh, well placed hitter suggestion can do you know oh it's it, it is it is and there was a whole series of people uh, who came out for six months to two years using the survey and, you know, the ability to go birding with three or more master birders simultaneously. Because uh, Matt was a master birder. I was a master birder. Brian was a master birder. Uh, I think Mary Frances is a master birder. Anyway, so people could come out and, and go birding with some really good birders in preparation for taking the master birder class. Oh, nice. And that was a, that was kind of a really like, that's kind of neat that, that I'm, you know, inadvertently running a school for good birders. Uh, and that was kind of, kind of fun. There've been 
so many people that have come out with me though it's it's got to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 400 people over the years um wow. as i say some coming for decades or for years uh some coming out just once or twice visitors from out of state out of the country um and then you know the num the people have uh people have come and gone now it's uh uh, Jordan Roderick and Mason Flint are two of my good friends that have been coming out very regularly with me. And I really appreciate that, you know, friendship that, uh, as long as you're not traveling somewhere, one or both of them is always going to be there. So it is a great social thing. It's a little hard sometimes to get people to remember that's been all, all the walk talking. This is a survey. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Shut up and bird, will you please? Yeah, <laughs> no, I'm sure you're nicer than that, but yeah, cool. Uh, anyway, uh, so uh, besides the uh, Mary Moore Walk, what what about birding most uh, gets you excited these days? What what do you like to do? I know you're a, a pretty avid, or have been over the years, a pretty avid uh, county birder in Washington. Uh, not many people. There's there's a handful of people who have 150 species in every county, but not a big handful. Uh, and you're among that, at least on your eBird profile. And I know that you chase a bird yeah, here in yeah. Pierce County once in a while when something really unusual shows up. <laughs> uh, so uh, what besides county bird, or including county bird, what most, uh, what most excites you? Well, uh, I do want to talk a bit about the county birding. Um, yeah, so please. I was, you know, 10 years into the Mary Moore survey when the idea of county birding started out. Uh, Ken Canittle, who, who he and his wife did the uh, Washington Birder website and the Washington right. Birder newsletter before that, um, they really encouraged it. Um, anyway, Matt Bartles, Mary Francis, uh, Tom Mansfield were big in getting me interested in counting bird county birding. Um, there were several things that made it worth driving all over the state. Uh, first, um, you know, Gene Hun, the great Gene Hun, who was a yeah. stalwart of Washington bird for decades. Sure. Uh, he called it, I think, something like the stations of the birding cross, something like that. You know, where every year you'd go to ocean shores in the fall for the shorebird migration. And, Gadget mm -hmm. and Samish in the winter for the swans and geese and potholes area in the spring. And every year I was seeing the same birds at the same time of year in the same places. And so going county birding, it was, you know, going to new places, going to old places and different seasons. And that both of those proved really exciting. And it meant a lot of new life birds since now we were tracking county lifers. Sure. It was really a fabulous learning experience trying to find places to bird, really learning what habitats various birds use, and like all kinds of information about seasonality. This was all in the late, like 2005, to, you know, so it was all before eBird. Right. And there was a lot of the state that had hardly been birded at all. So we had very little in the way of known hotspots or expected bird lists is very exploratory. And, you know, while we were in a bit of a competition in regards to regarding like, you know, how many species we had in each county, mm -hmm. we were also super supportive of each other, giving tips and sharing information and making friendships. And, uh, you know, we'd, we'd be going out and bumping into each other in strange places. Yeah. There are some counties in Washington that are still 
really underburdened. Uh, uh, you know, just they're a little remote, and there aren't a lot of locals birding. And, and there are also there are thirty nine counties in Washington, and there's a few of them that there's really no reason why they're a county. Waukiacum County has a high elevation of 600 feet. It's tiny. It has one town in it and less than 4,000 people. And it's so small and so unvaried in habitat. It's a mm -hmm. painful to go out there and try to find some lost bird that lands there because every year there's, you know, on a typical year, there's probably less than 150 species in the county yeah. the whole year. Yeah. Garfield County in Southeast Washington is also tiny and, I don't think there's a single body of water except for the Snake River. Um, there's like no ponds, no, no rivers except for the Snake, and the Snake is all just reservoirs there. So, yeah, yeah, a, I, I, I'm just kind of getting into county birding a little bit uh, as after I've retired, I have a little more time to travel. And uh, a couple of stories about that. I went down. I need. I'm trying to get a hundred birds in every county. 150 is probably outside my. Uh, ambition level, but uh, trying to get a hundred, that seems kind of a baseline, reasonable, nice round number, you know? Uh, and so I, I well, needed. It requires I, two or three visits to each county. Oh, yeah. So. I, I certainly have to get there in more than one season to, to have a good chance. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I I hadn't I haven't birded much in the southeastern part of the state. And so I went down and I needed a take a few, you know, anywhere from 30 or 40 more birds, something like that, in uh Columbia, Garfield, and Whitman counties. Uh and so I, I had gone camping in a Soton County once. And so I had a good number of birds there, but the other counties I mostly just traveled through or been there okay. transiently. Uh, and so I went in the, in the early, I think around early July. So not the easiest time to bird, but still that's uh, when I had some time and I thought I'd spend a day in each County and try to get up to a hundred. And I, at the end of the, about midway through the third day, I'm like, I think I've seen exactly the same birds in every county. And I did. I had something like 67 or 68 species in, in a day in all three of the counties. And there are only like four birds that I didn't see in all three counties. <laughs> it was like deja vu yeah, seeing yeah. the same habitat, the same season, the same. <laughs> it's funny. Yeah. Well, interestingly, Matt figured out, was looking into it and found out that uh, Columbia, Garfield, and the Stoughton County had all been one county at oh. the beginning of statehood. But there was some question that was going to be settled by a vote of counties, one vote per county. Oh, okay. So it split into three, so there'd be 20 counties in eastern Washington and only 19 in western. Okay, so there's politics behind most. It's, it's gerrymandering way back when, yes. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So I've got a question for you. I, I, my last county to get a hundred species in is Ferry County, mostly because mm -hmm. it, it's mostly the Colville Reservation, and or at least a large part of it is, and it's just not a place I've been very much. Uh, so I think I uh -huh. need like thirteen more species in 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 uh, in Ferry County to get to a hundred in all of the counties, and I'm going to be. Uh, I'm going to be in Eastern Washington, up by uh, up by Chelan for a week uh, in November, uh, and so uh, give me some ideas of where I can go find some birds in November in Ferry County. Uh, I need like 
puddle ducks and easy. I mean, the birds I need are easy, ought to be easy, but puddle ducks aren't easy around there. It didn't look like so. No, I'm not sure you'll find anything. I've yeah. been up there in the winter and found virtually nothing. Uh, typically, any ponds are frozen over often. So yeah. that may be a problem. We'll there, see. There was a sewage treatment pond uh, just like immediately south of Republic, and you might be able to get views very distantly into it. That might be a yeah. source of puddle ducks. I'm probably really, not going to go that far north, so I'll see what I get. Yeah, I think I'll chase eBird. Exactly. But I, I would say nowadays you can look on eBird and see what birds have been seen in November before and where they've been seen. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, so that's, public inf that's no insider really information thing. here. Public information. Okay. <laughs> yeah, eBird has democratized birding, hasn't it? Uh, you know, you no longer well, have is, to know somebody, or or you know, you can. You know, Democratized so birding. earlier I was talking about how, you know, from even with 30 years of uh, pretty consistent data, weekly data for Marymore, mm -hmm. that data in itself, you can't conclude much from. But uh, I've uploaded all of that data into eBird. Um, and eBird people have been, you know, very uh, pleased with getting all that data because that's really what they they yeah, love, that's their thing. That yeah, kind of consistent thing. But eBird is the way to make this data um, useful because uh, you know I find Gadwall numbers decreasing, but other people don't. Really shows up on eBird. It shows up as, sure. as you know, the number being just great. But you know me seeing that red ear um, red eyed vireos are decreasing. That may show up all across Western Washington on eBird, um, and that would actually mean something. So, yeah. uh, you know, we finally have a mechanism where every birder can contribute to the real scientific data um, in a very real way. So I'm really happy with eBird. Yeah, eBird has, I mean, eBird has just revitalized the uh, listing for me. I mean, I, you know, I just never was a good record keeper in my first 15 or so, 20 years of birding. I, yeah, I had, I kept track of what birds I'd seen, but did I see one or did I see 150? I just had a tick, you know, I didn't keep track of stuff like that. And where was I? Yeah. I knew what county I was in, but I didn't keep necessarily keep track of exactly where I was and things like that. So it's really, I have some early field trip lists from Eastside Audubon field trips to Eastern Washington. Mm -hmm. And it was literally just a list of, you know, 22 species from seven counties. Yeah, Just exactly. in the order in which we came across it. Exactly. And, uh, I just shake my head, um, you know, but it is hard to do numbers for eBird to get them accurate. And a lot of the time when I'm not at Marymount, I'll use X a lot, just saying, okay, it's here, because if I'm yeah. not actually trying to do a survey, I really don't find that that the number is meaningful. Um, yeah, I think Ebert would argue with you that they would rather have you make your closest guess than put an X. You know, that that's what the, their stated position is. You know, I, I, we I'm don't a, care if I'm you saw four or seven, but we care, we care if you saw four or 350, you know, and so I have to say, I, make my best guess and carry on. I'm not, I guess I'm, I'm not that compulsive. I 
just doing the best I can. <laughs> but but on the other hand, at Marymore, where I'm, you know, try to be very, uh, you know, always put a number in. Right. I always have tried to do that. Uh, it is really, you know, sort of a difficult subjective problem to try to come up with an accurate number because we will walk four and a half miles inside a half a square mile. Yeah. And we are, you know, coming back to the same place sometimes, winding our, our path is very consistent, but very wiggly. Mm -hmm. And uh, the park just isn't that big. So there's a good chance that we see the same individual bird on, you know, multiple spots. Was that a different park. Cooper's Hawk or is that the same Cooper's Hawk? I don't know. Well, that's almost every week. That is the specific problem. Last week we had four sightings of exhibitors at least. And it's like, okay, one was an adult, one wasn't. So there was at least two and there might've been three. One of them might've been a Sharpie, but I can't be, con I, I, I think it was, but other people think it wasn't. So uh, I just threw up my hands and put two Cooper's Hawks, one, yeah. either one. Yeah, um, exactly. You know, you know, I'm, I'm off by, I'm almost certainly off by one somewhere there. But <laughs> one plus or one minus. You can. For yeah. sure. For uh, sure. Hopefully, like, hopefully that averages out. I would guess that it does. Uh, I want you to talk a little bit about Washington Birder. Washington Birder is a website uh, that, as you said, was started by Ken Knittle and has been used by some Washington Birders uh, as their place to keep lists and uh, have healthy right, so competition and stuff like that. But uh, tell us about that website. So, uh, you know, years and years ago, Ken Knittle and, and his wife, Lori, was very involved with this too. She did a lot of the actual work. Uh, but, you know, they started out trying to give um, sort of more information about locally where to find birds all around the state. And uh, this was, as I say, long before eBird. And that was really uh, a very useful thing. And they started to, they were the ones that started keeping the semi-official checklists for each county, um, which I think is, a, you know, you can... You can get that now from eBird. Uh, you can't get actually most of the historic records, which which Ken and Lori had. Um, so you know, originally their chat, their their uh, their newsletter, and then their website was really a way to to put all of that information out there. Mm -hmm. And then uh, when Ken was getting ill and and later died, uh, Matt Bartles and I were sort of conscripted to go take over. Uh, website and uh you know we tried matt does most of the work um i he's he's even more data driven than i am and i am data driven uh but he is he keeps track of of county year lists as well as county the county you know the county lists the official sort of or semi-official county lists for each county so right. when somebody finds a new a bird that's never seen in this in the county it's well there's no record in ken canil's data uh, or ebird so it's a new bird for the county right uh, and you have that spectacular color coded excel spreadsheet thing that can right. be used so i have to say yeah i i've tried to use that and I just I'll go through. Oh, it's 103 on there and i have 104 which one's missing and oh i i just gave up so it, it was super useful before eBird. 
uh, um, you know, less so now. I'd be surprised if any new county burger is using that checklist at all. Uh, but uh, we were doing this before eBird. Uh, and I was actually in pretty good shape because uh, I wrote my own um, birding database. Uh, oh. As soon as Microsoft came out with the access database program, I wrote a relational database to keep to keep track of my bird sightings. And I still use that, at least for the Merrymore bird sighting, because I can write any query on that data that I want, which is fast. Yeah. 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 But, you can uh, write any query on that data. I could I could look at it and go, ooh. <laughs> but uh, you know, Abacis came along and it was uh also a relational database, I believe, written in access or that was the way a lot of serious birders who were data-driven kept their bird lists. Yeah. Um, and then eBird came out and it uh, pretty much took over everything for good reasons. But uh, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I, have... I, I did that. I, I used the Mac version of, uh, I think it was, I can't forget, Mac had a, a thing similar to Avisys. And then I had to switch to PC for work and I switched over to Avisys and tried to get some of my data into that and 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 being the fool that I am I thought well I, I've still got the Avisys uh, the oh gosh the Mac system and I've got it all on these floppy disks and I'll be able to <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's ancient history <laughs> I've got I've yeah. got the stack of floppy disks in a dream that somehow I can regain that data but I don't think it's ever going to happen well, I, I did, because I have an access database and I can write any query I want, I, I can export from mine and import it into eBird. And oh, that's okay. how I got all of my uh, Merrymore records in there. It took me oh, wow. a few months, but it's, you know, uh, I'm just under 2,000 checklists for Merrymore. Um, wow. That's a lot and of checklists. So that was a lot of exporting. And I've exported some amount of the rest of my birding data, but still sitting in the back of my mind is to export a lot more of my earlier data into eBird because I did bird for 20-something years before eBird existed. And a lot of us old guys did. Anyway, Michael, what uh, what do you have planned in the uh, the near-term birding future? Are you going to travel at all? Or uh, what, what, what are you looking forward to? Well, I've... I've Dropped off a lot on the county birding. It's such a different experience now responding to eBird alerts than it was when we were out, uh, you know, finding things out on our own. And and I'm at the point over 150 species per county. It's a lot harder to find birds on your own. So I'm not really doing that so much anymore. I've been doing a little bit of more travel out of the country um, this year, uh, Spain and nice. Ecuador. Um, and that was fabulous. Uh, next May, um, uh, my fiance Tracy Mitchell and I are going to Italy, and we'll spend a few days birding there. Um, it's really, really nice having a girlfriend who's a serious birder and a good birder. Yeah, you hit so the jackpot there. Good for you. Yes, I bet so you did. Good. I bet then, you did. You know, I might actually. We we bought a house in West Seattle with a tiny little yard. I mean, you'd be shocked at how small this yard is. But I've been birding from the yard. I've got feeders set up, and there's a fountain. And last week, during that one week, had 32 species from the house. 
Wow, that's a nice back, nice little backyard. Good for you. Almost Good all of you. those, I think, except for three or four, all of those at least visited the birding station, which is in an eight foot by twelve foot section of the yard. Very yeah. cool. Very cool. Uh, that's so, that's kind of capturing where I am. Some foreign travel and some real hyper local stuff now. So, Michael, you've been traveling a little bit. What's your style? I, I have uh, tried uh, birding internationally, just doing it myself. I've tried. Uh, I've done one, I think, with uh, one of these big tour groups joining a tour sort of thing. And, and I've I've hired local guides to show me things. And all of them have their pros and cons. What's your What's your preferred uh, strategy? Well, um, I've done some of both of those recently um and uh like in ecuador you need to have a guide there's no way to get around without one um i mean you i would never drive a car in ecuador just for starters uh but i also it's it's a lot harder to find information uh about exactly where things would be and to help i mean there's so many birds to keep track of down there and just to mm -hmm. learn how to identify I yeah. do spend a lot of time going through the bird books before I go and going through eBird before I go. So when we were in Spain, Tracy and I were able to go um, birding at a fabulous uh, wildlife area um, up near the French border on the Mediterranean there and uh, had a fabulous time. We were the, just happened to be at the peak of shorebird migration. Um, it was stupendous. But also in Spain, we hired a guide to take us into the, the steppe region a little sort of uh, west-southwest of Barcelona um, and, and had a guide to take us through there um, and would have, you know, not been able to find nearly as many birds had we tried to do it ourselves. So I, I like to do both of those. Um, it really depends on how, you know, when I'm in Europe, I can usually get around and I can usually identify the birds myself. Uh, in yeah. Central and South America, yeah. I usually get a guide. The jungle is a little less thick in Europe than it is in uh, Latin America, it, isn't it? It is. Uh, that's very true. And and, the, and there aren't uh, 47 tiny colorful birds 150 feet up in the canopy either. Uh, so, yeah, I, I agree. Birding's Latin America or uh, the, a lot of places in Latin America on your own is can be fun, but you just know you're not going to see a whole lot. Well, I've done two, two trips to Costa Rica, I think. Mm -hmm. And uh, there I, I could go back and rent a car and, and bird by myself uh, without a guide, I think, pretty well. Because, uh, mm -hmm. A, it's a much easier country to get around than some of the others. And, uh, you know, it's there's a lot of birding infrastructure there. So there, there are hot spots. And you, you can go to those hot spots and, and that sort of thing. It's a lot harder in more remote ones. For sure. I'm uh, I'm getting familiar with Costa Rica. My daughter lives there, has lived there for oh. you know a number of years. And so I try to get down at least every year to visit her and you know bird around her place and some local stuff. And but I still enjoy hiring a local guide and really kind of learning the the back roads of preference and and things like that. So it can be really good either way. Mm-hmm. 
good. So, Michael, I'm going to uh, uh, kind of wrap up uh, by circling back to the Mary Moore account. If somebody wanted to go on the Mary Moore account, they just show up. Should they get a hold of you on the there's a website I'll put in the in the podcast notes and on the blog post I do associate with this. Uh, uh, how does that work? So, I, yeah, I do ask people to contact me by email, uh, which they can find on the website. Right. Just so that I have some idea. Uh, it's also, you know, the survey is a survey. So it's not uh, the best kind of a trip for beginning birders. But, uh, um, you know, if you're sort of a beginning intermediate birder, it can be a great thing. I mean, even though I'm focused on trying to, you know, do a survey, as it were. Um, there's a lot of good birders coming along with me, and they will be very happy to help everybody get onto birds. And uh, the other thing that I've got on that website, um, I've got a blog that where I've got just basically my tweeters post from each week um, with some photos if I have photos. But I also have uh, available on there is a page for each week of the year with all of the past posts. So if you're gonna be going, if you're actually gonna be birding pretty much anywhere in the Seattle area on a particular week of the year and you wanna know what might be around, uh, like this week is uh, coming up will be week 43 and you can go to the week 43 page and see what we've seen over the last dozen or more years at Marymore during that week. And, wow, uh, that is a cool resource. A real, Very cool. Kind of a kind of a really cool thing, and there's a lot of photos on that too. So mostly, gen uh, mostly courtesy of Ollie Oliver, who took those fabulous photos for so many years. Nice. So nice. It's a really well, good way to see how the seasons change, is to go through those, um, you know, and see how things change week to week through the year. Sounds like a great resource for any Western Washington birder to sort of know what's likely to be around at any given time of year. I mean, Merrimore has its own unique things, but still for the Puget Sound area, it's a mm -hmm. fairly representative place to go birding. Sure, because it is, you know, lowland and mixed uh, habitat. So it's, you know, very similar bird lists to, you know, Discovery Park, except for the, the salt water or sure. Mont Lake Phil, or, you know, Magnuson. It's a very similar set of birds. Nice. Well, that is an excellent idea for someone trying to learn what's likely to be seen at any given point in time in the lowlands of Western Washington. Michael, thank you so much for doing this podcast with me. I appreciate your time. And uh, I one of these days, I will uh, be in Seattle or venture up to Seattle and join you on your walk. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Well, any Thursday. It's been nice talking with you. I'll make sure I email you first. Thank you. Now, take care. All right. Bye-bye. Well, that wraps up the Bird Banner podcast episode with Michael Hobbs. I hope you enjoyed. I want to put a pitch in for a friend of mine's book. Dorian Anderson uh, just finished his book about his biking big year. You can find hear about Dorian Anderson on episode number five of the Bird Banner podcast way back when I was just getting a start. I listened to that podcast and boy, I'm I'm really pleased with the the way I've, you know, 
enjoyed having podcasts over the years and I think gotten better at doing them. So anyway, it's been fun. Uh, and hopefully you'll maybe go back and listen to Doreen's episode, episode number five of the Bird Banner podcast, but also buy his book. I'll put a link in the podcast notes at how to find his book. You can find just Google, uh, go to Amazon or wherever you buy your books and put in Doreen Anderson, uh, Birding Big Year, Biking for the Birds or anything like that. And you'll find his new book. I heard Early reviews are that it's fabulous, uh, and so enjoy it. I'm going to have a Durian Honest guest real soon to talk about that, so stay tuned for that, and thanks for listening. Until next time, good birding. Good birding.